Now, as you may be aware, there's um, a significant number of people here at Hope Church that have come from other churches that would not class themselves as Reformed. Now, when people first arrive here, they often ask, well, what does it mean that you are Reformed? You know, I, I looked up online Baptist churches and yours came up, but then I saw, well, you're not sort of your run-of-the-mill Baptist church, you're a Reformed Baptist church. Well, what, what does it mean to be Reformed? Now, you might be surprised that people ask that question because particularly, you know, if you've always attended, attended a Reformed church, but you shouldn't be because according to the 2021 Australian census, Reformed churches are a small minority within a minority. Uh, according to the census, religious distribution in Australia is as follows. No religious affiliation, 38.9%. I know these numbers are a bit rigged, but let's just take it in good faith. Catholic, 20%. Protestant, 17.7%. And all the rest, 23.4%. And then we have Presbyterian slash Reformed. I don't know how they came up with that, but we're sort of Presbyterian slash Reformed in that category. It's a subsection under the Protestant banner, and it forms only 1.6% of the total population. And keep in mind, this includes people who would, you know, just nominally say that they're Reformed or, or Presbyterian. So when people ask, so what does it mean that you're Reformed, we should be ready to give them a good answer. And I'm wondering, how would you begin to answer that question if somebody asked you? Now, here's some answers that I've heard and even used myself in the past. For example, we believe in the teaching that flows, teachings that flow from the Protestant Reformation. Our doctrinal beliefs stem from Martin Luther and the Reformers. Or, you know, if you're put on the spot and you can't really think of anything to say, um, have you heard of R.C. Sprawl? Um, and then you sort of take it from there. Well, the reality is, you know, not many professing Christians are all that familiar with what actually happened in the Protestant Reformation. That might surprise you, but I believe it's a fact. Some have never actually even heard of it, if you ask them. If you mention Martin Luther, many people confuse him with Martin Luther King Jr., the, the civil rights activist, the American Baptist minister in the 1950s and 60s. And, take a deep breath, I'd been a Christian for 25 years before I ever heard of R.C. Sproul. I know that shocks most of you. While he is honoured and highly respected in reform circles, relatively few people would know who he was or what he taught. So what does it mean that we are reformed? What is something so fundamental to our core beliefs that if you did not believe it, then it would be extremely problematic for you to say that you are reformed? Now, I believe primarily it is this. The firm conviction that God is absolutely autonomous, self-directed, self-sufficient and gracious in the salvation of sinners. In other words, God is sovereign in salvation and anyone who is truly saved can never be lost. Jesus said regarding his own sheep, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. 
the Father and I are one. John 10, 28 to 30. So the title of my message today is God's Sovereign Grace. And I invite you to please turn with me to Acts chapter 9. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. Now, we are reading here about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, regarding, regarded by the Jewish rabbis of the time as one of the brightest rising stars in Judaism. Saul was an archenemy of Christ, who with seemingly boundless vigour set out to destroy this pernicious Christian sect, commonly known as the Way, because he saw it as a growing threat to his own historic religion. Reading from verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. And then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And also now, if you would please turn to Galatians 1, verses 15 to 16. Saul of Tarsus, after his conversion on the Damascus Road, which we just read about, became known as the Apostle Paul. And in his apostolic letter to the churches of Galatia, he writes, But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvellous grace. And then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus. May God bless the reading of his inerrant and all-sufficient word to us this morning. Before coming to Hope Reformed Baptist Church, and for many years after I became a Christian, I hated the phrase, once saved, always saved. Have you heard that phrase? Yeah, I heard it, but, and I didn't like it. Um, because I had a total misunderstanding about the sovereignty of God in salvation. You know, I, I truly believed that God was all-powerful, he was all-knowing, and that he can do whatever he pleases, like it says in one of the Psalms. But... I also believe that God was a gentleman. Um, let me explain. I, I was taught that while God is almighty, he also totally respects your person and your right to set boundaries. If you say no to God, then God, like a true gentleman, will respect your wishes. He will never exercise his sovereign will against your will. He will always back off rather than impose himself upon you. And because I didn't attend a solid Bible teaching church, I didn't know any better. Thankfully, 
You know, most of you, I think, have been spared from the teaching that God is a gentleman because not all that long ago it was very widespread in evangelical circles and today it's still being taught in one form or another in a significant number of churches. Listen to what a widely followed Presbyterian minister who heads one of the most widely watched religious broadcasts in the world today had to say, quote, My friend, God is a gentleman. He will never force you to move into a place you don't want to be. Since he cares for you so much, he desires for you to walk in complete liberty and he respects your boundaries, even if that means that you don't experience his best, unquote. And then this quote from the daughter of possibly the world's best-known evangelist of the past century. God is a gentleman. He won't force your way into his life or insist on helping you when you don't seem to want it or even push himself into your situation. He waits for you to ask before he intervenes. God is standing by, unquote. Now, it seems quite odd to me now that even though I back then habitually read my Bible, um, I still agreed with statements like these. But when you find yourself in churches that continually teach that God will only ever act like a gentleman, you can easily take on board that, you know, being a gentleman is one of God's attributes, you know, like omniscience and omnipresence and so on, especially if you're a new Christian. After all, you know, if these Christian heavyweights describe him as such, then surely it's pretty safe to believe that God, while he is all-powerful, would never impose himself upon anyone. And just, you know, that just wouldn't be like him. Or would it? You know, it's extremely important that we answer this question with Scripture alone and not the opinions of men. Otherwise, the whole basis for our faith in God and our assurance in salvation will sooner or later end in ruins. You see, most of us will, at some stage, observe people who once claimed to love and believe in Christ and were seemingly zealous for him and his word, fall away and never come back and we'll be left scratching our heads. And God, you know, supposedly with people like that, he will not interfere with any of their free will choices. He will just simply allow them to drift away into self-chosen devastation without lifting the proverbial finger to help them. And if God is truly like that, then we have every reason to feel absolutely terrified. Because this would mean that despite clear biblical teaching, that natural man is spiritually dead in trespass and sin and must be made spiritually alive by God, you can see in Ephesians 2.1 and 2.5, and that he cannot receive the things of the Spirit because they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2.14, that despite these scriptures and what they clearly teach, man can still, of himself, make a valid spiritual decision about where he will spend eternity without any interference from God who will simply respect whichever way he decides to go. That to me is just absolutely frightening and terrifying if that was true. You know, you can just say to sinner's prayer, make a human decision for Christ at your own leisure and that's that, deal done. But please note, not only can you autonomously make a decision to believe and be saved, 
but you can at any time choose autonomously to fall away from your decision. And therefore, a man like that can choose to be saved and then unsaved and then saved and then unsaved again as many times as he likes. And the best he can hope for is to die on a day when he's still believing in Christ and having faith in him. So essentially, this was the reason why before I started coming to a Reformed church, I didn't believe that a person who was truly saved um, could, did not believe that a person who was truly saved could not lose their salvation. I had observed people, you know, who made decisions for Christ at altar calls, often more than once, and then continue to act in a manner no different to before. There was no change in their lifestyle. And instead of recognising that they were truly not saved, I assumed that they were saved, but then unilaterally just chose to abandon their professed faith in Christ. And for many years, this left me with many loose ends about what the Bible really teaches about salvation. So let's explore this a bit further. Is God really a gentleman who totally respects your own wishes regarding salvation? Does the Bible teach that? We saw in our text with Saul of Tarsus that he had no inclinations at all about making a decision to follow Christ, did he? He hated Jesus. He hated his followers with a burning zeal. He was like an angry animal whose very breath was dangerous. He believed Jesus was hanged on a tree because according to Deuteronomy 21.23, he was accursed of God. But now his followers were proclaiming that Jesus was both alive and doing miracles through them. So obviously to Paul, this was evidence that their power was coming through Satan and not God. So he was all out to destroy them before they could destroy his historic religion. In Paul's thinking, there was no possibility that God would take a cursed false prophet and make him the Messiah. Further, there is no trace of gentleman Jesus anywhere in our text. Paul is abruptly thrown to the ground. And trembling and with fear, he's shocked to realise that Jesus is alive after all. And now he's his new boss. The proud Pharisee is led to Damascus by the hand like a docile lamb, three days without sight, neither eating nor drinking, while he awaits instructions from his new master. Now, with all that great drama going on, it's easy to miss the sovereign grace of God in all that happened to Paul so far and what was yet to come. Paul's salvation was all of sovereign grace, just like every sinner saved before and since. Paul would later write to the Ephesian church, undoubtedly reflecting on his own salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. And Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he made, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. 
So Paul could personally vouch that his salvation was totally due to the sovereign grace of God. It was not a reward for good works, that's for sure. He would never boast of that. Paul came to realize that salvation is a totally undeserved gift from God. Why? Well, firstly, because God decided in advance, even before he made the world, to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Christ Jesus. He desired to do it. It gave him great pleasure. And also, because as God's masterpieces, which is how the scriptures described us, created anew in Christ Jesus, he made us for doing good works, which he had already pre-planned for us. And God started to prepare Paul for the good works he'd pre-planned for him well before he confronted him on the Damascus Road in his murderous mission. See, Paul was a, a Jew, but he had Gentile citizenship. He was trained in the Old Testament scriptures as well as Greek philosophy and Roman laws. He was God's chosen vessel to bear his name before the Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel, Acts 9.15. And he was the ideal man to preach the message that in Christ there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Now, Paul had altogether other ideas about what he was going to do with his life. But then the words of the Old Testament scriptures probably became very real to him. Firstly, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Jeremiah 10, 23. And Proverbs 16, 9. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. God is sovereign in salvation. He is absolutely autonomous, self-directed, self-sufficient, and gracious in saving sinners. Now, if you say that you're reformed, and this is not one of your core beliefs, then you will forever be trying to fit a round peg in a, in a square hole, so to speak. Because reformed soteriology, the, the, the doctrine of salvation, is framed around the sovereign grace of God. Now, in view of all this, a pertinent question that many people struggle with is, once a person is saved by God's sovereign grace, are they always saved? And the plain answer is a booming yes. People who repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ as their saviour are brought into a relationship with God that guarantees the eternal security of their salvation. Again, we, we need to be clear that salvation involves more than just saying a prayer or making a decision for Christ. Salvation is a sovereign act of God whereby an unregenerate sinner is washed, renewed and born again by the Holy Spirit. John 3.3, 3. John sorry, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Titus 3.4-6 but when the goodness and loving kindness of our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When God exercises his sovereign grace to save us, he pours out his Holy Spirit through Christ. We are made right in his sight. 
and we can have confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Numerous passages of Scripture affirm that salvation as an act of God is totally secure. So let's have a look at some of these. Uh, Would you please turn to Romans 8.30. Romans 8.30. (coughs) Excuse me. Moreover, whom God predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now note the words here are all past tense. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. Our full salvation is fait accompli. It's an irreversible accomplishment. It's an indisputable fact. It is as we are all as if we are already glorified in his presence in heaven right now. There is nothing that can prevent a believer, a true believer, from one day being glorified because God has already purposed it. Once a person is justified, his his, his salvation is guaranteed. He's as secure as he was already glorified in heaven. In Romans 8, 33 to 34, Paul asks two critical questions. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. And and who is even at the right hand of God and also makes intercession for us. Now one translation says, Who dares accuse us before God, whom God has chosen for his own? God has given us right standing with himself through Christ's death and resurrection so there can be no condemnation ever. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Romans 8.1 And furthermore, we have a saviour who is both advocate, advocate is like a solicitor or a lawyer, and judge sitting at the right hand of God right now pleading on our behalf. Now imagine if someone brought a charge against you in court despite the fact that your lawyer and judge are the same person. What what would be the chance of you being condemned? Same as Melbourne's score against Brisbane Friday night. Zero. No chance. C. Believers are regenerated that is born again when they believe. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Saviour, Towards Mel- Melbourne, <laughs> towards <laughs> I shouldn't I shouldn't stray. Towards man appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Titus three four to five. For a Christian to lose his salvation, he would have to become unregenerated, if that's a word. The Bible gives no evidence that the new birth can be taken away. Also, the Holy Spirit indwells all believers. John 14, 16 to 17. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you sometimes? No, forever, forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you. And will be in you. And Romans 8 9. But you are not of the flesh, but in the spirit. 
if, the spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So for a believer to become unsaved, he would have to be unindwelt and, and detached from the body of Christ. And again, the Bible gives no evidence of that. John 3, verses 15 to 16, both state that whoever believes in Christ will have eternal life. So if you believe in Christ today and have eternal life but can lose it later, then it was never eternal at all. I mean, that's just fact. And the promises of eternal life in the Bible would probably be in error. And in a conclusive statement, Scripture says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, neither height nor depth, nor any other created thing, it's pretty inclusive, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And finally, Psalm 135 verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and in earth and in seas and in all the deep places. It would be totally inconsistent with God's revealed attributes, character and power that he would that it would please him to save you and then for him to allow you to be lost. It just would not make sense. The same God who sovereignly saved you is the same God who will sovereignly keep you forever. Once we are saved, we are always saved. Our salvation is eternally secure. Now, one question that frequently pops up in discussions about God's sovereign grace and one people have a lot of difficulty in reconciling, and I can understand why, is how can God hold me responsible for not repenting and believing in Christ if he hasn't chosen me? Well, the answer is a lot simpler than you might think. The answer is simply because you are responsible. That's the answer. God's sovereignty doesn't absolve you from obeying him. You will never be able to come to God on the day of judgment and say, oh, you know, I didn't obey you because you didn't choose me. No, God, God will see right past that. No, the only reason you didn't obey him is because you consciously refused to. God's sovereignty is a recurring and constant theme throughout the Bible, and so is God's expectation that we obey him. Now listen to some of God's commands in the New Testament and just think to yourself, now, who, who's responsible for obeying these commandments? Mark 1, 14. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Luke 13, verse 3 and verse 5. They're, they're, they're identical. I tell you, no, unless you repent you will all likewise perish. And Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and I will give you, and, I, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, that, that sounds like an invitation, and it is, but it's also more than an invitation because it comes from Jesus, who is fully God as well as fully man. Do we treat this with indifference and say, I'm not responsible to do that? C.H. Spurgeon writes, But how shall those be known whom God has chosen? 
by this result, that they will willingly and joyfully accept Christ and come to him with simple and unfeigned faith, resting upon him as all their salvation and all their desire. Reader, have you come thus to Jesus? Years after his Damascus Road conversion, the Apostle Paul wrote, Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But God had mercy on me so that Christ could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. Then others will realise that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. 1 Timothy 1, 14 to 16. Friend, if you are yet unsaved and far from Christ, you need only one qualification. You need to be a sinner. Luke in, five, in Luke 5, 5 um, 5.32, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This means that Jesus calls everyone to repentance because the Bible declares none is righteous, not even one. We're all sinners. For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6.23. The gospel is good news for everyone who willingly and joyfully accepts Christ and comes to him with simple and sincere faith. No ordinary human being has ever met the righteous requirements of God's moral law in order to be saved. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, all of us, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. If you want to be saved, you must transfer your trust in your own good works to what Jesus did on the cross. As long as you keep trusting your own good works, thinking you're not really all that bad, you're showing contempt for what Jesus did on the cross. You're in effect saying that his death wasn't necessary for you, but his death was absolutely necessary, even in your case, because God is holy and he requires perfect righteousness. Not nearly perfect, right? perfect righteousness. Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The Greek word used for perfect here is teleaeus. It conveys a sense of uh, maturity, completeness, attaining a goal in this context. The goal is to meet God's standard, you know, not simply settle for some human morality. And God's standard, as I said, is perfect righteousness. I was good enough, will not cut it on the day of judgment. The Bible clearly states that we are far from perfect. We are all sinners and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Now, would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 3 and we're going to be reading verses 10 to 19. Now, this is God's x-ray of the whole human race. Note the repetition of, of words like none and all, which in themselves assert the universal nature of human guilt. As it is written, 
There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. And their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. 1 John 1.8 If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Ecclesiastes 7.20 For there is not a just man on earth who does good and who does not sin. Psalm 14, 2-3 The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. How then do we reconcile the command to be perfect like God with the reality that we are not? The answer lies in the good news which God has proclaimed to a doomed world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth as the God-man and he's the only man who has ever lived a perfect life. It is through him alone that we can meet God's standard of perfect righteousness. Rather than earning righteousness, we can be declared righteous by placing our faith in him. Romans 3, to 24 declares, We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned and all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously uh, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 further demonstrates the substitutionary atonement of Christ. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. If you have been chosen by God for salvation, sovereignly chosen by God, then the evidence of his sovereign grace will become evident when you repent of your sins and you believe in the gospel of Christ to make you perfectly righteous before a holy God. The gospel is good news, that all who believe in Christ's substitutionary death on their behalf are reconciled by his blood, born again and adopted into the family of God. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God and to those who believe in his name, who were born not of the flesh, not of the will of man, but the will of God. John 1, 12, 2, I should have worn my glasses, 13. Uh, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we, are, that we should be called the children of God. 1 John 3, 1. But to reject the gospel is to embrace bad news, really bad news. Men are condemned before God as the result of their own lack of faith before the Son of God. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. 
John 3, 17. And it goes on to say that he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So if you're still not recognised or reconciled to Christ, and we'll finish off, um, which will it be for you today? And I say today because there's no guarantee that you will see tomorrow. None of us. If you choose not to believe in God's own son, you don't have to do anything. The scripture says you're already condemned just by not doing anything. And, and please realise, if you're not reconciled to Christ, your life is hanging by a thread over the pit of hell and you never know when that thread is going to break and when you're going to plummet into an eternal fiery torment. I'm not trying to scare you. That's what the word says. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be forever saved from such a faith by a God who is sovereign in salvation. If that's what you want to do, then start off by simply speaking to God. Humbly, humbly come before him. Acknowledge you're a sinner. Know that you're condemned. You know, there's, there's no hope of being righteous before him except for Christ. Tell him that. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Isn't that good news? For I have come from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose nothing, but I should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. John 6, 37 to 40. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that of yourself, of yourself entirely, Lord, you have loved every saved sinner before the foundation of the world, before anyone knew their name, you knew it. Lord, their salvation is certain. Lord, because you have caused it to happen. You have pre-planned good works for every saint before the foundation of the world. Lord, you are affecting those good works through your saints even right now. And Lord, and I pray that Lord, no one will walk away this morning thinking, I'm just, I'm just not sure whether God can actually save me right to the end. I, I, I just, too many bad things happen. I, I go astray. I sin. Um, I'm just not sure if I'm good enough. Well, the reality is we're not good enough. And that's why we need a sovereign saviour who will not only justify us, but also protect us and keep us and save us right up until the very end. If left to ourselves, if he was a gentleman just who left us to ourselves, we would no doubt go astray and destroy ourselves. But we thank you, Lord, for your keeping power, for your sustaining power, Lord, for your immense grace in salvation, Lord, in sanctification and in glorification of every sinner. Amen.
This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.